You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Downs podcast. If you've hung around Strong Downs for any time at all, you've heard of Urban 3. You've heard of Joe Minicozzi. One of my best friends ever. He's the chocolate to my peanut butter, as he likes to say. <laughs> Joe, welcome back to the podcast, friend. Thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. I have got to hang out with you a ton. And uh, so I, I know how you work and I know the passion that you bring I also know how deeply you care about Asheville, the city you live. And I watched this tour de force presentation you gave to this ad hoc committee in Buncombe County. And we're working on this just accounting project together. So I'm familiar with the data, but, but, but I was blown away by the way you presented this stuff. And I said, let's chat about this because I want people to hear not only what's going on with just accounting, but I, I want them to hear the Buncombe County story because I do think it's a story of America. I do think it's a story that 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 is reflected in other places, but it's one you also deliver with a lot, a lot of passion just because I know you deeply care about this place. So can we, can we start by just talking a little bit about where is Buncombe County and how did you find yourself presenting in front of them? some deep uh, dive tax information? First of all, Buncombe County is in the Western part of North Carolina. We're up in the mountains. Asheville is the prime city. Counties run the property assessment system in pretty much every community, uh, except for when you get into the Northeast, you find some cities that do assessment. So our county is basically putting the sticker prices on value to which the taxes are applied. We've done work across the country. We've done work in redlining, redlining analysis, and figured out the long-term effects of racist policies. So if you basically eliminate the ability for anybody in a neighborhood to get mortgages, you're going to see a decline in value of the properties because you can't sell the house or it's difficult, or you can't do a home improvement loan because you can't get a mortgage in that property. And that went on until 1968. So for 30 years, 34 to 1968, communities experienced what's called redlining. So we've seen the economic effect of it. In in the case of South Bend, Indiana, if they did not do redlining, if they just skipped doing that, and if they skipped doing urban renewal, they just left the city that they had in 1934 to just matriculate forward, they would have a billion dollars more value. Now, that's a big number when your whole city is only worth 3.4 billion. Right. Basically, they wrote a check for being racist for a billion bucks and basically flushed it down the toilet. So this is what happened with cities all over the place. As we were doing this, our city and our county adopted resolutions for reparations. And, you know, we're all residents here in, in my county. So we just figured, well, let's let's just go ahead and help. Let's let's run the number. And as we were getting prepared to do that, the county does a reassessment. And so we pivoted and analyzed the reassessment to see if there's anything that's um, inequitous baked into the way that the machine of tax assessment happens. And the answer you is have, yes. Uh, yeah. When you and I first met, and I think you know your early presentations and, and, and stuff you do today kind of starts with some of this too, showing the different values from your house and from, I think you use the Biltmore Estates, 
it's a little bit like our Taco John's where it's kind of like the, the, the thing that people first get introduced to. So I'm, I'm very used to this idea that in a sense, people are getting a volume discount when they are rich and own a lot of land than if they're poor and, and they're, they, you kind of pay a premium price for your, in, in terms of the, the way your property is valued. But the idea that this then shifts into the way they're taxed and the way people are taxed. And, and then also, I think, shifts underneath that, that distort that even further, is, is fairly astounding, really. Give like a 101 of the, the Biltmore Estates, your property kind of thing. You don't have to use the slides for this one unless you've got it. But it's one of those things where I think when we see it presented in the way you, you present it, it turns on a lot of lights in people's heads. You know, it's it's funny. Both of us, we wandered outside our professions. You know, it's, yeah. and it's and when you start doing that, and you're like, why is that happening over there? People give you their feedback, but being the naive idiot, we're learning. But you also get to say, well, why is that? Why are you doing right. things that way? And and people will just spit out their biases. So let me just show you. This is like this is from 2009. I'm going to go back to sort of the oldies here, and. Uh, <laughs> Some <laughs> That's the way I feel like when we go back to the, the growth Ponzi scheme, I'm like, yeah, I was writing that in, in yeah. Oh, nine. Yeah. Um, so so this, early Joe, early Joe. So I, I was doing some work as a neighborhood volunteer in our community. And I noticed some things in real estate and I was working in real estate at the time. This is the governor's Western retreat right here. So we in Western North Carolina bought the governor a house up on top of the mountain. And we're like, please come and visit us every once in a while, because the capital is like four hours away. Just down the ridge line is one of my favorite properties uh, in Asheville is this house on top of the mountain with a tennis court. Because Chuck, let's face it, we all need a tennis court on top of the mountain. You don't want to go play yeah. tennis with the great unwashed, right? Right, right. So, if you're gonna if you're gonna bother living on a mountain, you might as well also carve a tennis court into it. You, you may as well. So yeah. that's that property. And then this is the old Jim Crow era grade school right there in the black neighborhood. And that was also uh-huh. a red line neighborhood across the street is this property. Again, these are little, old graphics. Little house, little, little like house. shotgun shackish kind of house. Yeah. Yeah. A little, just a little, a little bungalow kind of thing. Yeah. So if you just look yeah. at the tax rolls of the rich person, my house in the middle, those are my dogs. They think they're lions or they're both dead now, but they, we used to do that and freak out our neighbors. And on the right mm-hmm. is the low wealth house. If you just look at the tax rolls, this is what you see. Now, if you take the properties- Now, pause here for a sec, Joe, because yeah. we will release the video here. So if you're listening, you can you can go to YouTube and watch the video, go to our site and get the video. But you, you're showing here what I think people would expect when they're going to pay. If I'm going to buy a property at the top of the hill, I'm going to pay $1.4 million. If I'm going to buy you know, Joe's nice house in, in middle-class Asheville, I'm going to pay you know a, a, a decade and a half ago, $240,000. If I'm going to buy the the little kind of poor house in the poor neighborhood, I'm going to pay eighty thousand. Those are numbers that everybody is going to expect going in, right? Correct. And under North Carolina law, our assessed value should be the market value. Period. So there it is. Right. Okay. So is. if you take the properties off the dirt and just look at the dirt per acre, so back to the mm-hmm. the Taco John's analogy or the, the the miles per gallon, if you will, when you look at the dirt value per acre, the tennis court property is fifty six thousand an acre. My house is more than double that at 160,000 an acre. Almost triple that, yeah. Triple. And then the, the low wealth neighborhood is 235,000. So at the low wealth, it's 235,000 an acre. At the high end, it's 56,000 an acre. 
So like an idiot, I just went to go ask questions. I went and met with the county assessor at the time. And I showed this to her. Now, remember, this is 2009. We had a black president back then. Her response Uh to me was, well, those people use more police services. (laughs) Let me restate this. I buy property at the top of the mountain, right? Like the premier property in the entire area. It's appraised. It's not worth. The county goes out and assesses it at what is a sense uh, 22% of what the the poor black neighborhood per acre is getting assessed at. In other words, if I'm going to go buy an equivalent amount of land in the poor black neighborhood, the county is trying to say, I'm going to pay almost five, four and a half times the cost for that. Well, also think of the response of the bias. So I said to her, I said, excuse me, would you say that out loud in public? Because I wasn't aware that the county cared about the city's police department because the county doesn't service this neighborhood. Secondly, we have to, I mean, you're an engineer. We have to pump water to the top of a mountain. You know, do you know how expensive that is? From an absurdity standpoint, the idea that, you know, these people, however you want to phrase that, use more police services is insane because, you know, you and I both know how much that road to the top of the mountain costs to build, how much pumping all that water up to the top of the mountain costs, how much running the, the pipe and the drainage and everything else down the mountain costs. If we're going to actually look at costs of service, not because that's not what the statute says. The statute says market value. If we're going to look at the cost of services, this is completely backward. Well, or, you know, I mean, hey, you know, she actually gave me an urban three statement back. I mean, you know me, it's like, sure. Yeah. Let's run the cost. I want to see where the police officers are. Give me the right. map. Good on her for at least saying that, but don't neglect all of the infrastructure to the top of that mountain. So yeah, let's, let's run right. the cost on this. I, I would advocate that too, but, yeah. but it's just, she could, she was not conscious of the bias that came out of her mouth. Now, now, now mind you, my house and the house in the low wealth neighborhood, we're only about a quarter mile away from each other. I, I live right next, I used to live right next to that neighborhood. Now, when you glue the houses back on the properties, let's get past the dirt for a second, because there's going to be people that say, well, Joe, you're not being fair. It's a bigger parcel of land. You're just doing this per acre thing. And that's a cute metric, blah, blah, blah. All right, fine. Let's look at the, put the houses back on the property and look at what we're paying per acre in taxes. The wealthy house is paying, let's call it $2,500 an acre. The low wealth neighborhoods paying double that at about $5,500 an acre. And I'm paying 9,500. So I'm pay, actually paying the most. I don't have a mountain view. I don't have a tennis right. court in my backyard. So, and I also don't have really expensive infrastructure. So, so you can see the distortion, a massive tax break. So this is something we had in the back of our mind, flash forward 12 this, years. This is a decade ago. We knew this, and, yeah. and, and this seemed brutally unfair a decade ago, right? I mean, you and I sitting down chatting about this, we look at this and we're like, this is really inequitable. This doesn't make sense. And this is just bad public policy. We're encouraging more people to build on top of a mountain and we're subsidizing the people in the, we're having the people in the city subsidize that lifestyle. Correct. And also, I mean, Chuck, I don't know if you remember, but we went and you and I went to the assessor's conference and presented this. Yeah. fish out of water. We had no idea what we were doing, but we went over to that organization to say, what's going on. And to their credit, they're like, yeah, that's not right. You know? So, so at at that organization, they got it. So it's like, what's, what's happening? What's, why are these decisions flawed this way? And there are humans that are in the process that don't understand their biases. This gets back to your work with the, with the confessions book and 
and what's going on with the engineering society that when pointed this stuff out, rather than hear you with open arms, they like, you know, try to go after your license or something like that. You know, it's just the punitive nature of, of these cults, if you will. When I was watching your presentation there, the thing that struck me deeply, I know the redlining conversation. It's really brutal when you look at the forms that people filled out in Asheville, but it was also really brutal when you showed where the highways were built. Can you, can you go through that for us here? Because I, I think I'm going to assume that a lot of our audience understands redlining or, or has been through the redlining conversation. And, and while you're bringing it up, maybe I can just give a, a 101. You know, in the 1930s, we came up with the, the Homeowners Loan Corporation. And we, uh, as part of federally backing and federally insuring loans, we said to local jurisdictions, the federal government, the taxpayers only going to insure loans that are good loans. And a good loan's got to be in a good neighborhood. And so you go, you go figure that out. And I, you know, I, I think people demonize this, understandably so, because we're going sh- to talk about the ways this was abused. I, I think there is a narrative here that says this is fiscally trying to be prudent. I mean, we don't want to write risky loans in bad neighborhoods and have the taxpayer back them up. Okay. But then when we get on the ground and we see how risky is defined, you get a little sick to your stomach, right? It starts to to not be risky as in this is a high risk neighborhood of, of going default. They're building on the side of a cliff or they're building in a wetland or they're building, you know, in a floodplain. We're talking about people and their their human characteristics. Can you talk a little bit about the way this manifested in Asheville? Sure. Yeah. On the right is our red line map. On the left is the actual document that was filled out by William Coleman, the loan service field representative. So I don't know the full connection know who William Coleman is, but he's a consultant. This would have been some analysis. Some local dude who on behalf of the homeowners loan corporation comes in and, and helps set this map up for the for the for the region. Correct. And on the left is the data on why different neighborhoods are colored the way they are. So the the four colors are green is good, blue is okay, yellow is sort of declining, and red is hazardous. That's their Mm -hmm. word. For the audience, y'all can go to Mapping Inequality. It's a site that University of Richmond put together, and they've they've pulled all the maps from across the country that were built. And you can grab these same images that I have here. So Mapping Inequality, I think .org, uh, it's University of Richmond that has this. But here's, here's my neighborhood I've highlighted, or not my neighborhood, but a neighborhood in my community that I've highlighted is this kind of red sort of like a V-shaped thing. This is, the, this is, in our town, we call it the South Side. It's still predominantly, or not predominantly, but it has a high concentration of, of Black population. But if you look at the chart on the left, you can see where they say Negro population. Yes, 75%. Of, of it's that, actually that one community. of the form, one of the one of the boxes in the form to determine if the neighborhood is hazardous or not. Is are there are there Negro populations there? Oh yeah. Well, also you'll find uh, like the, the remember these started. These are all temporals. They start in 1932 and they stayed in place yeah. until 1968 when they were deemed unconstitutional because you can't single people out this way. Well, in uh-huh. 1932, the the other thing that you'll see on here, you see, look to the left of that, you see foreign born. Now there's none there. But in Kansas City, where we've done this work, 
you'd see Italian there. So I'm, I'm dangerous. Watch out for me. I could bring your property. Yeah. Down. Um, <laughs> but we were the Italians were the number one immigrant class in 1930 coming in at number two were Germans. Well, guess what? German Jews. Of, right. Exactly. Yeah. Now that the difference is here, I mean, think about this. I could change my name to Smith. Oftentimes you'd find Italian neighborhoods that may be yellow class and not red class. So I could move over there, but if you're black, you don't have that choice. So right. if you're black, you will remain hazardous. That's the, that's the nefarious part. Well, there's lots of nefarious parts about that, but that's really what's, what's damning about this. So, so at, the, at the time, the federal government's coming in to, in a sense, prop up and subsidize in the midst of the Great Depression, housing in this country, and basically help families stay on their feet, get on their feet, and then after World War II, accelerate their wealth. All of these areas that were labeled hazardous are basically going to be left behind. They're not going to be allowed to participate and they're going to be left behind. And that is largely based on racial characteristics. Well, also, I think we have to realize what's happening as a pivot from our government at this point. If you go back to the 1920s and 1910s, we had a lot more Americans that were living in mixed income, mixed race, and more multifamily neighborhoods, more rentals. So what our, what our country was doing was shifting into home ownership because they were terrified of socialism. So they're trying to make right. more of an owner class. It was just only certain people get to be the owner class. So we have to acknowledge and look backward. And anybody that's traveled to any other country, you see this. America is different because we have this single family detached type of mentality, but it was created by our federal government and basically gasoline was thrown on it to really mm-hmm. take it off and subsidize with all sorts of highways and roads and other things that we experimented with. So this is part of the experiment, if that, yeah. if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, so, so here, I mean, you can see at the bottom, there's, there's a big Negro business district. So they not only are targeting houses, but they're just like, let's go after their businesses too. This is the next one over. This is in a neighborhood called Kenilworth. And you can see most of Kenilworth is blue, but they like surgically cut out the appendix right there, this little uh-huh. tiny little part of the neighborhood. And they're like, that's where all the black people are. So 100% black people in that part. So they just drew around their houses in, in that neighborhood of Kenilworth. This is the, the West side or West Asheville. That's Burton street. That's where I showed you that house across from the, the, the grade school. And you can see it's hundred percent black. And then you can see right there, Negro churches and schools. So that's the school that I showed you. Here's what's sort of unique about Asheville that we don't see in a lot of places. Not only were we doing this to black neighborhoods, but here they went after the poor white people. So this is over in the Carrier Park area, um, no black population, but no infiltration of immigrants. But if you read this, it's low class people started moving in and uh, some of them are bootleggers. So those are the moonshiners. Ah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> hey, it's Appalachia, you know? Um, yeah. <laughs> so you'll find weird stuff like this in different cities, but to, by contrast, that's what you saw that got redlined. Now let's go to the other side of the spectrum and see the green line stuff where money is essentially like, you're going to get a mortgage. Okay. This is Biltmore Forest, highly restricted residential area and restri- strongly enforced restrictions. In this neighborhood, they actually deed restricted that you couldn't sell to Jews and black people. Like that's in the dirt. You can't, you can't transact. Again, that's unconstitutional. Those deeds still have that clause in it. It's just not enforceable. But you see that there, that it's green. So no black population. And I like this type of men, capitalists. Awesome. It's like right there on the <laughs> it form. It seriously says that. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it does. 
Okay. <laughs> so these are good. These are good white capitalists who won't sell to uh, others who are not like them. That gets a government subsidy for your home loan. Hey, help a brother out. They need some money. Come on. You know, right, these capitalists right. need a little leg up. So, yeah. okay. So mind you, 30 years of this, right? That you're, you're, mm-hmm. you're, you're putting fertilizer in some neighborhoods and you're starving others of their economics. Then we follow through with these laws, which are called the blight well, laws. Joe, right. can, I, can I put one fine point on that too? It's not just a random 30 years. It's like I garden. I, I've got a garden and my garden plot is right next to my parents' a garden plot on their farm. They planted two weeks earlier than me. And they actually hit like a warm window. And then we had a, a like three weeks or four weeks where it was kind of cool here. Their garden's like two months ahead of mine because it got started at like a different time. Like the, the point in time when you get the acceleration, like you put yourself in a place to dominate are those early years. So not only is it 30 years, it's the most important 30 years where one got like to run the race got two miles ahead and then the other one had to sit still or go backwards. Right. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, Keep well, going. I mean, I mean, there's a lot of narrative that go with this. I mean, think who got the, the physical improvements in parks and greenways and sidewalks and the streets. It's where were we putting the, the infrastructure investment too? Was it in the red neighborhoods or the green neighborhoods? I mean, chances right. are it's mostly in the green neighborhoods. So yeah. you're not only getting, you're getting economic capital inside the quote unquote private market. You're also getting public investment. To, to fertilize that garden too. So it's almost as if you don't get to water your garden, but your, your parents do, you know? So right. that's the other thing. So, and then complicating this or adi- adding to it, we talk about urban renewal. Well, urban renewal happened in blighted neighborhoods. And, and these are the state laws. Every state still has these laws on the books. You know, this as a planner, well, how we determine mm-hmm. blight, right? Notice how it's only to predominantly residential neighborhoods. So you and I, as a planner can go in and just deem this thing blighted and say this, our state law says we can come in here and this is going to impair our sound growth and we're going to exercise powers of eminent domain. You know, there are states that have stopped the use of eminent domain. And I see it as there's, there's a need for public to make the public investment, but we need to be conscious of and aware of the inequity that's baked into the system too. So is it going to be complicated to build a road in a place or build a water system or, or, or like a reservoir? You might have to have a complicated argument with a farmer about their property. Yes. And the power of the government should be exercised for the broader community good. But the way that it was used here was a cudgel to beat into these neighborhoods and extract their land. And the law gave people the ability to do that. Well, this is what I think your next your next image is going to show, you know, this idea that you combine these two powers, the power to fertilize one neighborhood while starving the other neighborhood of resources. And then when the neighborhood starved of resources ends up meeting the definition of blight, being able to go in and in a sense, seize those neighborhoods, push people out and do what ultimately is really destructive things to those places. Well, or think about I mean, we know the stories of this as well, is that the negotiation for a lot of these properties wasn't done with, with good faith. It was done with, you know, basically communities had a gun to their head and it was like, you either sell the land or we're going to take it anyway. You got a choice. Right. It's not much right. of a choice. So, so yeah. a, lot of, a lot of these highway projects were plowed into neighborhoods with not necessarily willing sellers in a system that wasn't as, they didn't, let's, let's be honest, 
black people in my community didn't really get a fair shake in 1960 when our highways were built. So yeah, yeah, uh, understated, right? So just to go into a couple of neighborhoods, this is another map that I found. And there's the other thing to be mindful for the planners on this podcast, go out and talk to people, listen, hear people in their communities. I've done a lot of work in the Shiloh neighborhood um, here in in my community. I've lived here for 20 years. I've always heard stories about the black neighborhood in the Biltmore estate. I, I never understood what they meant by that because the black neighborhood is over in Shiloh, not in the Biltmore estate. Well, here's an old map that has, um, let's kind of zoom in here, this kind of weird, it looks like Nebraska, like a weird version of Nebraska mixed with Oklahoma or something like that. But this is a space that's listed as like 50%, 10 to 50% black are colored uh, according to their map. I went to the map and kind of figured out where that was. And here it was. Yeah. Now it's a highway interchange, a hotel, and some medical buildings. There are no residential properties in that wow. area. So what I hadn't is, seen this one before. Yeah. So what yeah. happened is that neighborhood essentially got bought out and they moved over to Shiloh. So the neighborhood still has that oral history and that memory of being over there, but there's no, there's no evidence other than these maps. Because now if you go there, you're just going to see a highway. So the other thing that we need to be mindful of is cities don't just happen overnight. They're this evolution of layers of change that happen in them. So anyway, that's that area. So the people who lived here either remember or have had stories passed down to them of living here. And now when they go by, they're looking at the remnants of their neighborhood are now an interchange and uh, yeah, a couple of buildings, not for them. Exactly. So taking the city map on the left and comparing it side by side with the, with the red line map and just saying, you know, these highways didn't happen overnight. They, they were built in certain areas and we could see where they lay in my community um, as well as the interchanges. So I just went ahead and covered, cover those in. And then let's talk about the renewal projects, like the public housing projects and things like that. So these, these red spots, sorry to the podcast people I'm using images, but this is like the color of it. What you've done here is you've taken the just a map. It's, it's, it looks like a Google map of where the highways and interstates run, and you've overlaid that where where the uh, urban renewal projects are, and uh, you know they're red blotches within that map. So keep going, Joe. You're gonna yeah, and then any kind of like large government project like the like the community college or things where you know there's been these massive interventions, just put a circle on it. Just put it on a map. And then take yep. that. Also, there's, again, remember, these are like larger projects that are state-driven, county-driven, and city-driven. So when you get into the city stuff, you find these like mini highways that we have, these little crosstown expressways and things like that. This is Charlotte Street. So these little black lines that I put in here, those are other city projects, which are basically urban renewal projects as well. So when you take those and slide those over the red line map, you see how it all synchronizes to this area where we've drained them of their wealth. So it's it was cheaper for the, the community to run the highways if you're taking people's real estate. Yeah, it's going to be cheaper to go into the poor neighborhood and, and threaten them and take their land away. So that's how the, that's the inequity that was done in those neighborhoods. And notice how the Green Line neighborhoods were totally spared of that. So let me say this in the most nefarious way. If I want to build a highway in Asheville, the first thing I need to do is devalue the property and destroy the wealth in the neighborhoods where I'm going to build a highway. If I want to build a park or a community center or a whatever, and I, in a sense, have the power of the state to, to enforce my will, 
I'm going to first go in and make that have not much value. I'm going to really destroy the the desire of people or the capacity of people to you know resist my uh, my highway. I don't know is there was a mastermind intention of that, but it's certainly not hard to see how the effect of all these policies create that exact uh, timeline. Well, it, it's all it's the exercising of power and who's got right. power and who doesn't and. It's hard to say, like, are these people evil? They're human, you know, and they made at, at, at that time and place, the folks that were in power were exercising the power the way that people did in most communities. It's just, we can look backward with 2020 hindsight now and see how inequitous it is. Now, there were probably people, not probably, there were definitely people back then that saw the inequity. They just didn't have access to power. But we have to acknowledge that this happened. You have to say this I look at this as criminal, you know, this is a crime that happened. Okay. Let's move on. Let's not keep going because this damage, you know? Right. I feel like, I feel like in Asheville in particular, there has been this acknowledgement that this happened. And as you say, you know, the city's actually enacted a reparations policy and said, we're going to, we're going to actually own up to this and try to fix it. Right. Correct. Yeah. Actually, we've already done the, comparing properties, but I'll, I'll just, I'll just fly through this real quick, but this is just grabbing my neighbor's house. My neighbor's a black family, the Lordman's fixed income, Vietnam war veteran, uh, disabled. The guy's a riot. He's like 80 years old. I actually asked yeah. him, I'm like, Mr. Lordman, why didn't you appeal your property? Cause he was like showing me his property card and his tax bills going up and he's pissed. And, mm-hmm. and I said, I said, why didn't you appeal? And he goes, you think I'm going to get a fair shake? Like that was his first reaction. Right. And I said, it, it broke my heart because I'm like, you know right? what? You're right. So I, I, that's another thing that I think we need to acknowledge is that those folks that are in power need to go out of their way to honor that and to hear that and say, okay, maybe I have been part of a system that has been punitive on, 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 on folks. So anyway, putting that aside, and, and y'all could do this at home. I, I've dropped some of these videos out in the ether, but just look at three three things. Look at the dirt value per land value per acre, the building per square foot, and the percent change in value from one assessment to the next. So these are Mr. Lordman's numbers: five hundred thousand dollars for the dirt per acre, one hundred twenty-seven bucks per square foot for his house, and a seventeen percent change from one assessment to the next. In North Carolina, we do our assessments every four years, so every state's different. But this is how ours works. It's going to the golf course for a second. So this is over by the country club. Um, this is a 1920s Tudor house. Uh, the thing's valued at about 500,000. It has underground utilities, which is super awesome. I don't have that. A view of a mountain, which is super nice. Uh, the property's worth about, let's call it 500,000. Mm-hmm. When you look at its numbers, it's about 450 an acre for the dirt, $107 a square foot for the building in a 6% change. Let's compare that again back to Mr. Lordman. And you could see the difference. So the Lordmans are $127 a square foot versus $107 a square foot on the left. How could you look at these two pictures and say, definitely the Lordman's house is worth more per square foot? This is where I watched when you were doing this presentation, the Bungum County ad hoc committee blow up, right? Cause they, cause when you show this and for the people who are, are listening to this podcast on the left, we have a very nice middle-class, maybe upper middle-class family home on the right. We have a, a more modest home in a poorer neighborhood, but yet the way the numbers all work out, the wealthier 
place is not only valued less per acre, but its value is going up at a lower pace than the poorer neighborhood. The poorer neighborhood is seeing their house go up in value at a greater rate, at a faster rate. They're paying more taxes per acre. This is where I watched everybody blow up. They didn't like to hear this message, right? This was very uncomfortable for them to listen to. Well, I'm going to call my county out on this one. We had a meeting before that, and I asked for one hour uninterrupted presentation to go through this. And my county staff chose to let the assessor sit at the table with the committee and he interrupted me. Obnoxiously and, so. Yeah. Yeah. And he's I, like, I watched the whole video, right? He's like, well, you know, that's 19, 119%. You're not being fair. I'm like, look, Keith, let's call it 19% and 6%. The proportion in the blue bar and the red bar is still the damn same thing. I'm like, what do you mean by this? And what he was doing is he was he was trying to color the evidence in front of that committee and exert his, himself as the expert, and he didn't want to be criticized. Well, as a taxpayer, he shouldn't have been sitting there. As a taxpayer, I had a meeting with him and the county facilitators, and we all agreed to an one-hour uninterrupted presentation. They violated that. That's deliberate. Mm-hmm. That was a show of power. And it's like, I'm sorry, I'm going to a county commission meeting tonight, and I'm going to state that that subterfuge needs to be called out. Or- Get rid of that damn resolution that we're going to care about reparations. The county yeah. manager got mad at me because, you know, I said, why are you guys doing this? And she's like, well, we're defending ourselves because you started this. And I was like, seriously, she's, she's a black woman. And I said to her, I said, Avril, how can we have a conversation about classism and racism in a safe way? Help me. But it's going to make people uncomfortable. So obviously there's a human reaction here. People don't like to be critiqued. The thing that I've always valued about you, Joe, and in this particular conversation, you're giving numbers. You're not walking in here calling people racist. You're not going in here saying this is all, you know, you're showing what the actual system produces in data. And I find that to be the most powerful way to have this particular conversation, because for the people who are listening on the podcast and not able to see this, this is stark contrast. You you have two buildings that I think we can all look at and recognize as being two different, you know, people at, at, at two different, let's just say classes in society or two different sets of, of how they're being treated by the state, by the government, you know, the one is subsidizing the other in dramatic fashion. And I know these are kind of close to apples to apples comparisons of homes. You, you have more that are the disparities even greater, right? Yeah. Well, actually, let's continue down this road. This is going back to that tennis court property and, yeah. and throwing them into the mix. They're $369 a square foot. My neighbor's 127 and the golf course house is 107. So they're more value, but to be fair, they did dump a bunch of money into their property and they renovated. So even though they've renovated, their growth is only 158%, or let's call it 58%, and my neighbor's is close to 20. So my neighbor's right. is still moving fast. And I can tell you, they haven't done anything to their house other than put a bathtub in their front yard as a planter. That's it. Right. So mm-hmm. um, when you look at the taxes paid per acre, it's stunning difference of 500,000 an acre, 450 and 84. And then you look at the land value per acre, same ratio. And then here's the, the difference. There's six units of opportunity up there in zoning. So there's this subtle kind of skipping the law on what the zoning shows for this. They're basically choosing that this isn't developable up there, which is not fair because that tennis court's flat. 
So I would argue that that's a bias. You know, it, well, the way that I see you it and I have it, done you and I have done development work, Joe, and we know yeah. that the way developer the way a developer makes money is to go up to this lot and say, I can get six homes on here. You've got some topographic things that mean I've got to shift things around and do this, but a developer is not going to give up six homes because the, you know, because there's a tennis court there. Right. So well, what, what you've got is a landowner who has secured really valuable property and is wasting it or not using it to its full potential. And that choice is being subsidized by the tax system. Well, and actually, since we're on a Strong Towns podcast, I mean, you have a very uh, strong vocal, and maybe they're more more opinionated in, in your in your comment section that people get it with land value taxation in the Strong Towns uh-huh. community, which is great. I, I get land value taxes as well. I think it would it would help our country to start practicing it a little bit more. We've we've done work in in Australia and New Zealand, and they actually do it. And you know, those people aren't dying by the exercising of land value taxation. Pennsylvania, right. it's enabled. Vermont, it's enabled. So you have to have state enabling legislation to do it. But it is a solution. It would catch something like that. But let's be clear. The law says you're supposed to look at the zoning for that property. So the law tells the assessor they should be putting that value into it. You don't need to have land value tax. The law affords that. It's the assessor or maybe the, the software that they have has a bias baked into it that just basically glosses right past that. That tips the scales on how things get priced. Right. So it's yeah, we could do it. They're choosing, they're choosing to not factor in something that has yeah. a, a huge value. If we went up to those properties and said, "Here's your development. We're gonna, we're going to in a sense downzone you to what you are now," people would freak out. Right. Yeah. Well, the other thing is that it, in I think Washington State they actually have clawbacks that if a if a farmer goes off and sells the farm and converts it to a subdivision the state steps in and says, well, you know, we've gave you this break as this farm subsidy forever. So we're getting our tax dollars back because you're cashing out. We don't have that farm anymore. So let's just be honest about the subsidies and how they're placed. And let's just be more transparent about it and talk about it. So this is, you know, that's the thesis of a lot of this stuff. I tend to be a little bit emotional because this is my community and I'm paying for it. So but the thesis well, of and our you, company you, and our and you know your neighbor. Yeah, that, well, that too. <laughs> you you know the people yeah. who are getting screwed. I think that's yeah. the reason why I wanted to talk to you about this one is because you you you're you're a passionate guy, but you're extra passionate when it comes to this place. Yeah, but you know, I mean, you know, you know, us at Urban Three, we're always making maps and models and showing stuff. So this is what we said to our community is like, just do some of these maps. So this is a map of just the dirt value change from one one year to the next. And you can see this one property sticking up like this crazy pixie stick. When you do this visualization, it's almost like looking at an x-ray of broken bones. You can see where the problem is. So just go right. in there and correct it. So, okay. Hey kids, everybody on, online, this is basically how the tax system works. The assessor has this thing called a camera model. Don't think that it's some like whiz bang software. A camera model is literally computer aided mass appraisal. That's it. Mm-hmm. It's like AutoCAD in architecture world. It's just some weird name for this software that basically just runs a mathematical model across all of the properties. That's it. It's just a big old Excel spreadsheet. Then ask the question, who created that Excel spreadsheet? Because we had that before we had the camera model. Now let's go back one step further. Who created the long form mathematical models that were converted to the Excel spreadsheet that became the camera model. So there is something baked into our system that goes way back 
that we've been applying over and over and over again. So those are the questions to ask about what's going on in the system. Now, when we use contemporary technology, we can do an x-ray like this and see immediately where the problems are, like right here, where you can see yeah. this, this is one neighborhood right here. And you can see just crossing one street in this neighborhood, you go from a crazy change down to nothing. So something's askew geographically in that neighborhood. So use these things like x-rays to see these problems. I do feel like a lot of what we have done is said, how do we take what's on, you know, what's written in cuneiform on, uh, on clay tablets and recreate that system with each iteration. And so, you know, instead of saying, how can the system help us take a more critical look and understand this? Uh, we've actually said, you know, how do we just get the same results in a new system? And, exactly. you know, what, what you're showing here is that there's a lot of just really obvious anomalies that nobody frets over all that much, right? It, it could be standards of practice. It could be habits. It's biases. It's just, this is too complicated technology. Now, it shouldn't be complicated for for folks inside the assessor world, because the basis of all of this data, we have to thank them for it. They're the ones that created this GIS model. They created all the GIS data. So we wouldn't be able to practice in our communities that we work with with our clients if it weren't for the assessors. So I, I thank them for this. I just, in this case, it's just like, have the curiosity to look at what you got. This is a, a place called Black Mountain, which is this little village just east of Asheville. So just going from the whole county, let's just look at a side-by-side -side comparison. Black Mountain is kind of you know, just a little village of 13,000 people. This area called Montreat is kind of like hoity-toity. It's a little bit upper end. You could see in here how hot Black Mountain is versus Montreat. Now, when you go to the, the dirt value change and just ask one question, how much did the dirt change in Montreat versus the dirt changing in Black Mountain? And you can see Black Mountain essentially doubled in value over that three-year period while Montreat barely moved. And it's just, it's 0% growth. So, so how is it that these two communities side by side, both 10 miles away from Asheville, both are sort of semi resort communities, yet one is flat as a pancake and one is doubling in value. Is it because no one wants to live in Montreat? I mean, I don't know. That's, right. that's what the data is showing me. Um, both being appraised by the same organization, right? Yeah. Yeah. But what I'm showing you is there's there's a bias writ large at the, at the county-wide level, but when you zoom into an area side-by-side, side, neighborhood side-by-side, side, it really becomes pronounced. You can see it yes. clear, as, clear as day. When you take the dirt and put the building, because you know maybe the argument is like, well, Joe, you're not being fair. The buildings are where all the value is. All right, let's put the buildings on top of it and, and see what's going on. So you can see the red stuff is buildings. And yes, Montreat does grow some with, with building value, but Black Mountain's growing the exact same building value that Montreat is. So you can see how the land value in the assessment is pumping it up through the roof. This is the, what the model shows. And it's, I think it's like a 500% difference between Montreat and uh, Black Mountain. Yeah. So as we were doing this analysis, the New York Times ran this article with Chris Berry from the University of Chicago did a macro analysis where they didn't even, they just like went and grabbed all the assessor's data from all the counties across the country that they could get. And they just ran a mathematical analysis and found a pretty interesting result in the system. And what they found is this kind of, um, I call these J curves, but it's kind of this chart that looks like a J lane on its side, where the lower your value, the higher your assessment, the higher your value, the discount you get. So 
it's basically baked into the way that the, the assessment operates. So if you go out and buy a house, where does it get set on the pricing register? Um, now, remember, the purchase price by law should be the market value because that's what the law it, says. What better determinant of market value is there than the actual value that the property transacted at, right? Correct. Right. Yeah. But, but the assessors use this thing called a sales ratio. So this allows them to have some wiggle room because they don't know if the computer is going to be right or not. Well, first of all, you could just look at the MLS and see what the transaction was. Why do you just wait for the computer to figure it out? But let's put that aside. In my county, the sweet spot is $225,000. So if somebody buys a house for $225,000, it is assessed at $225,000. That's the sweet spot. If you go lower than that, it gets a higher than assessed price value but it's still within the margin of error. So you can go up to 120% of value from the purchase price and the assessor won't see it. It's in a blind spot of this thing called the sales ratio because that's all they care about is it's somewhere between 120 and 70%. So it's like, we don't care how you score on a test. It could be between 120 and 70%. Okay, well then why are you getting 70% down over at the rich people's houses? And you're scoring, you're scoring more than good on the poor people's houses. So that's what's basically going on in our system is that if you're wealthy, you can see the discount over $225,000. That translates to a $1.5 million overcharge per year in taxes to the poor and a $4 million undercharge to the wealthy, which translates to a $5.5 million subsidy per year. Let me break this down a little bit. My understanding always in talking to assessors is that they're supposed to assess at market value. They tend to go a little bit under market value because then people don't complain about it as much. They don't show up at the hearings. They don't have to fight. If your house is worth a quarter million dollars and you, you know, assess it at 220. Uh, you know, all right. It, you, people are not going to argue over that. If you come in, then it's it, it's too, it's supposed to be two hundred and fifty, and you say it's three hundred or it's three twenty five. The gut reaction or the default, in a sense, is to under assess or under appraise. That's what I've always been told. And yeah. when you look at it, I, like I I kind of get that. Like I understand that. And if everybody was under appraised, you know, ten percent. Yes, wealthy properties would have a big subsidy more so than poor properties. But what you're actually showing is the opposite. Wealthier properties are getting underappraised. They are getting underassessed. It, it's greater than what the median would be. But poorer properties are being actually overassessed. They're being charged more than what their property is. It, it, am I getting that right? Yes. So I'll, I'll walk you through an example and show you. So let's be fair here, that, that you have a computer software that's just churning through and putting price tags on things. And so to be fair to the assessor, our assessors only have, I think, 20 people for 280,000 parcels of land. So they're not going to be right. able to do everything. So they have to depend on the computer. I get it. But you should so understand- You don't have some computer... racist dude sitting there going, oh, black family, more- White family yeah. less, right? Well, this is a computer model we've created, right? Yeah, that's a computer model, but we should understand that the computer model is doing that. But the right. problem is we've got this kind of, we've got this huge wiggle room of 70% uh, to 120%. That's a massive margin of error. Now, uh, okay, computer did its thing. Let me let me walk you through humans. So right. this, is, this is a house, uh, 2021, 
it sold for $265,000. So it's this little bungalow house sold for $265,000 in 2021. That same year, the computer said it was worth $306,000. So that shows you that it's 16% overvalued. So the computer made an error. So because there was some data that was different on this property from its property card, the assessors got a second bite at the apple. So they went in and they said, okay, something's wrong here. We're going to revalue it. So they dropped its valuation from 306,000 down to 263. Now here's, here's the thing. If there was no alert that went off that, Hey, there's different data in the system. This would have just kept going. And that property owner would have paid more taxes than it was actually worth unless they right. knew. So how many of us right. know, know the appeal process and know how to challenge this? And you know that's the other thing. But anyway, so good on the assessors. They got it down to 100%. They, they actually a little bit less than purchase price. So purchase price was 265. They assessed it at 263. Good. You get a $2,000 discount yeah. in value. So they, 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 they got nothing. it right, let's say. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Here's another one. Okay. In this case, it was assessed at 275. They purchased it for 285. And the assessor goes, aha, let's bring it from 97% up to 100%. Okay. Mm-hmm. Follow me? It's good. Right. So this one is the opposite. They sold it for more than what it was assessed at. So they bumped up the assessment. So I feel good about this so far. You've gotten two where they've corrected the problem. Uh, they've used real world data to, in a sense, calibrate their model, right? Okay. Let's look at these okay. three. This house sold for 575 or five, 5.3 million. It was assessed million. at 2.8 million. They were off by 50%. They took a second bite at the Apple with the test score sitting right in their face. There's the sale price, uh, 5.2 million. They assessed it at 2.9 million. Why? Here's another one, 3.3 million. Assessed at 1.8, a 53% assessment. They did a second reassessment. They put it at 1.8. Here's another 2.5, 50% assessment. They pumped it up to 1.6. So when you look at all the higher end ones, they're still getting this discount. So, so I don't. So even don't when understand. the data reveals, so so now we have sales on three. Let, let's just call it wealthy properties. We have sales of three wealthy properties. We see what the numbers are. Even when the county gets the numbers, the same people that are saying, "Hey, you poor person, you middle class person, we're going to make sure and get your taxes exactly right." If that means bumping you up or dropping you down, okay. But this wealthy property we're going to, with intention, assess you somewhere around half of or 60% of the market value. Why is that happening, Joe? You got me. Okay. This is the confusion, right? Your ad hoc committee didn't like this information very much. Well, they didn't get this information. You know, we weren't given the opportunity to drill into this. The only thing that I was allowed to show was was the presentation that the county commissioners saw. And, yeah. and the thing is, is like, all right, we go, go ahead and protect the system all you want. This isn't going to just dis- disappear. Um, mm-hmm. So a couple of folks from our team, Lanier Haggerty and um, Ori Baber, they, they dropped some information pretty much showing this uh, on the Strong Towns website yesterday. So it's, this is content that, that needs to be out in the world. And we need to have this conversation. Now, now, to be fair, we've also been talking with the assessors organization to make sure that we're not out of line. We're not just like blaspheming or calling them all evil. It's we want to make sure that we're seeing this properly. And 
this is something that happens in practice. It's not something that they would stand behind at the national organization. So it's the same way that if you could get an honest ear inside the, um, the ITE or something like that, where they're like, oh yeah, we should be doing sidewalks better than this. You know, it's just, and not just highways and roads everywhere. It depends on who you're talking to inside the transportation system, as much as it depends on who you're talking to inside the assessment world. But this is the basis of how we charge for our government. Joe, we, we've only got a couple of minutes left. We're going to come back and, and do some more of this in the future because this project is, is ongoing. And But I, I, I want to surmise a little bit about why this is going on. And I'm going to throw out a, a, one theory to you, and I, I want you to refute it or, or, or build on it. I've sat in these, in Minnesota, we call them truth and taxation hearings, where you get your assessment sent to you. And then we, uh, we hold a hearing and we let people come and challenge what their assessment is and all that. I sat through these. I, you know, did work with cities for many, many, many years. And, you know, they would often have them at the beginning of council meetings or, or what have you. So I wound up just sitting through a bunch of these. I never, ever, 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 ever saw a person that you would say owned a, a poor property or someone who was on the lower end of the income spectrum at one of these. But you always saw, always, if there was going to be anybody there who was going to protest or thing, it was someone who had a $6 million house, a $4 million house. They were there. They had a lawyer. They had a numbers geek. They had basically all these people there to, to challenge this appraisal. It seems to me a very human reaction for assessors to want to avoid that type of conflict. And one way to avoid that type of conflict is just to stay way back from the line. If I can assess you at 100% of your market value, because you just paid that for a house and I can assess you that, and, and you are a, a middle-class or a poorer family, I'm pretty confident you're not going to argue that. But if, if I'm going to you know, appraise you at, at $5 million when uh, you know, you're, you're probably just sold for you know, 4.9 or 5.2 or whatever, somewhere in that range, you're going to bring a team of experts in and tell me why I'm wrong. Tell me why this transaction didn't reflect market reality. Why uh, you know, this and that. And then I'm going to spend all this time and energy fighting with you. So better to just not get anywhere close to that and give you any plausible reason to fight. Am I way off? Is there more to it than that? I don't think you're off. And I think that is a reality to the situation. Both you and I have worked in government. We've seen it. And it is, I'd say, rational way of looking at it. You know, you think about when you talk to police officers, if that's all you're looking at is criminals all day, you're going to have a skewed perspective of what the population is. So right. fine. Fine. I don't agree with that, but I can appreciate it and understand it. What my commissioners, county commissioners and politicians and people who we elect to serve our government and control our government of the people by the people, I expect them to provide cover and do the right thing in this situation. And because it's going to be uncomfortable for their staff. So they need to step up and say, this is the right thing to do. And we're going to adhere to the law, period. Because what my county is missing right now is that $5.5 million a year. Just what I showed you with those five examples, Ori, uh, Dr. Baber went ahead and ran just 2% of sales in our county. And, and we could get the actual data on that. In those 2%, it's $4 million that my county isn't collecting, just out of 2% of our housing. So $4 million would fund 
a hundred teachers. It would fund, you know, our, our, our county doesn't have $600,000 for an after-school program. We could, we could solve that. So if let's just make sure we're conscious of that exchange, that our fear of the wealthy is taking away resources from, because we're giving them money. Actually, let me show you one last one and I'll stop sharing. Um, yeah. This is uh, the Shiloh neighborhood here. And you can see the dirt value change in this is all level, like a whole bunch of aircraft carriers, because the narrative that we're comfortable with here is, hey, Joe, you moved into Shiloh neighborhood, you bought a house, you set the new market value, so everything bumps up to that level. Great. When you go across Hendersonville Road right here and you go into this green neighborhood, which is the Biltmore Forest neighborhood, there's clearly two transactions that set the new land value there, but you can see how it's not applied to the rest of the green boundary. So they're choosing exactly what you said. They just don't want to stir up the hornet's nest. We don't want to get all of these rich people to send their attorneys after us. So we just screw it. They know that we're not looking, we're only looking at one side of the road and conscious of gentrification in, in, in Shiloh, but no one's looking at these other neighborhoods that are given this free pass. So we should just, let's put this all on the table and let's have an adult conversation about whether this is the best way to practice our government. Now at Urban 3, we would argue, do we even need to run government this way? Like, let's just be creative. I mean, this, this coffee mug that I have right here, I know what the cost of the metal and the plastic is. Let's just charge for that. So those three-dimensional models that you, you know, we've weren't done with you, it's all about looking at the system of finance and seeing how the cash flow of all this stuff operates. We've got the technology. Why are we using 1700s thinking in our tax system to run these complex machines called cities? Because this is what you're going to get. You're going to get these really weird standards that somebody, I don't know, in the 1800s figured out. Not exactly the most equitous time in our country in the 1800s well, in the South. Well, you've, um, you've always said, we don't get Walmart because everybody loves Walmart. We get Walmart because it's the, it's the natural outcome of a system that encourages people to build junky buildings, low-value buildings on low-value land and gives them a tax subsidy in order to do it. You add to that the fact that we subsidize the infrastructure, we build the interstates and the highways and the interchanges, and we basically, you know, for every Walmart that goes in, uh, create this massive taxpayer subsidy for their business model. You're going to get Walmart. It's not that Walmart is a great viable business. It's that it's the natural parasite or the natural outcrop of the tax and, and subsidy regime we have. I feel like the data you're sharing in Asheville and the data that you're uncovering here highlights how that is deeply embedded in what we do now. And if we want something different, I think it's heretical because nobody wants to talk about like a different tax system. You know, we talk about the land value taxes, like the least offensive of the series of taxes that local governments could do. I, I feel like I'm some kind of anti-tax zealot or nut job when I'm like, abolish the property tax, abolish the sale. There has to be a better way to do these things one that actually reflects not just the, the, the wealth capacity and the value, but the actual cost that different development styles are creating for our communities. Yeah, and I would, I would say to the, to the audience, you know, have the humility to empathize with the situation that people are in as well. And don't just see this, this work as, as a way to shroud your belief system into like, let's get rid of taxes. And you know, like, that, look, we're all in this big social experiment called cities and we're all in this together. So we need to figure out some way to work it out and finance these things in an equitable manner and things cost money. 
a road costs money. You can't say, I don't want to pay taxes, but please let me just drive on that road all day. It's like, no, you, 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 can't, you can't hold these truths together. We can all step out and kind of look at these things, interrogate it, have a conversation, see the information, and let's just figure out if this is the best thing for our communities and let's, let's try to do better. So it's going to be an evolution. Is there a perfect tax system? No, no, not at all. Uh, Andrew Jackson said, man has yet to contrive a perfect tax system. We're not going to do it, but we can make a better system than what we currently have. And that's what we're trying to start that conversation here. Joe, the website is justaccounting.org for this project. If people want to learn more about this particular project and what's going on, I know we've got updates coming up. Uh, they can also go to strongcounts.org and just keep in touch with, we're running a lot of this content. Joe, your your site is urban3.com. If people are not plugged into the work that you're doing, they they really should be. Joe, let, let's continue to chat about this. I know uh, there's more stuff to talk about even in this even in this presentation that we didn't get to, but there's more that you guys are uncovering every day too. And we want to make sure that people hear about that. So thanks, friend. It's nice Thank to you. see you. Great seeing you too, sir. Thanks a lot. Hey, everybody. Uh, thanks for listening and, and keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. Oh, Magnet City! I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit, Agenda 21. Yeah.